0: Case file number 7.9. Where the streets have no plane. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. Don't, no, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. He, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and and the other one, the other one, Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him, skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later, they're going to slip up, and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson.
1: Uh, The accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hacker. So we talked about the keyhole program in a previous episode at some point. And in yeah. that, I think I alluded to the U-2. Um yes. And the topic of this episode being a focus on uh, Francis Gary Powers, one of the U-2 pilots. Mm-hmm. um Before I drill down into his whole story, though, I'm going to just kind of touch base a little bit on the U-2 itself, and obviously yeah. not the band.
2: Yeah, but it, it's a it's real interesting plane.
1: Um, mm mm-hmm. And, and part of that is because in the past few weeks, uh, there was that whole Intel leak on the Splinter Discord server for gun YouTube and whatnot. And one of the yeah. things leaked were photos of the uh, Chinese spy balloon from a few months ago. And they were taken by a U2, which prompted a mm-hmm. lot of the media to go, well, what the shit, we still fly U2s?
2: Yep. Although I think that they're being, aren't they de- being de- decommissioned soon?
1: Oh, possibly. I, I didn't look too much into like, you know, when they're being decommissioned. Mm-hmm. I just, made sure to research, are they still flying like two day as of that right now? But I couldn't get the flight paths. So (laughs)
2: it doesn't exactly work like that, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm a big fan of the SR-71 and the U-2 Mm -hmm. was developed by the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works just before the SR-71. And I understand that they did a number of their test flights at Groom Lake uh, Mm -hmm. Area 51 as well. Because that's, that's where uh, the SR 71, back when it was the Y 12, was being uh, developed. Right,
1: right. Yeah, yeah. And so the U 2s, AKA Dragon Ladies, uh, they're American single engine high altitude recon aircraft and have been in operation since the 1950s, the mid 1950s mm-hmm. to be exact. And they're able to gather data from 70,000 feet, day or night, you know, with their sensor arrays. Yeah. Martin Knutson who served as the director of flight operations.
2: I think it's Knutson.
1: K-N-U-T, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah Knutson. Um, Who served as flight director of flight operations for Ames Research Center for NASA. He spoke of the U-2 as being, quote, the highest workload airplane to ever be designed and built. You're wrestling with the airplane and operating the camera at the same time. It leaves no time to worry about if you're flying over Russia or Southern California.
2: Like, this is the 50s. This mm-hmm. is just a little bit after World War II. Right, where a a uh, inertial bomb site was a major technological achievement at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, ten years earlier. Um, so, like, no real automation.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Only five of all the U twos built had more than a single seat, and those were specifically for trainer versions of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And in order to maintain their seventy thousand foot ceiling. Early U-2As and U-2C models had to fly almost to their never-exceed speed. Uh, the margin between their max speed and stall speed at that altitude was about 12, uh, 12 miles per hour. Wow. And they were always, like, pushing pushing back.
2: Yeah, it's just, that, that's, that's not a lot.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, this little window uh, had the affectionate term of coffin corner given to it because breaching uh, either limit met the airflow separation at the wings or tail of the aircraft
2: i i studied for but never took my pilot private pilot's license oh really Uh, it's been a long Mm -hmm. it was a thing when i was when i was a kid uh but so it's been a very long time since i read about it but the u2 has very long wings
1: and Uh, yeah it's more um, of a glider
2: yeah it's basically a glider with just enough engine and and life support to keep somebody alive at seventy thousand feet (laughs) and the craft in the air but like because of that the way that a stall work stalls work is that it creates uh, turbulence buffeting, so that the 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 lamellar flow gets interrupted along the along the wing. And with those really long wings, when a stall starts to happen, it probably goes pretty slowly, but there's it's very hard to stop it from happening.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Interesting.
2: But I uh, yeah, I probably should keep my mouth shut because I I barely know anything about this.
1: Yeah. So the pilots of these aircraft, um, they would wear partially pressurized spacesuits due to the partial pressurization in the cockpit. And Mm -hmm. they, during their eight-hour flights, would consume water and liquid food through a uh, ceiling hole in their face mask. But typically, they would lose up to 5% of their body mass on these uh, eight-hour missions that they would uh, endeavor to. Mm -hmm. So there were also the cyanide pills um Affectionately called the L pills, and these were offered to pilots before their missions. Uh, most of them refused to take these pills, even on the missions.
2: They wouldn't even take them in the capsule, in, mm-hmm. in, in the in the plane with them. Wow.
1: Yeah, but multiple reasons too. Uh, fun fact is, um, through a mix-up on a 1956 flight, a uh, pilot accidentally adjusted an L pill, thinking it was candy.
2: Oh, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, this prompted <laughs> them to make sure thereon after they put the L pills in special boxes. <laughs> uh, to avoid any confusion that, hey, this is poison, it will kill you.
2: Note to self, when when when, when issuing cyanide pills, mm-hmm. hopefully yeah. I'll never be in a position to issue or have a cyanide pill.
1: Yeah. In, in 1960, though, the CIA actually realized that the pill breaking inside the cockpit could kill the pilot. So they destroyed the pills and put as a replacement a needle poisoned with a powerful shellfish toxin hidden within a silver dollar. And that was worn around the neck of the pilot, which is like some straight up James Bond shit.
2: <laughs> so there's like, a silver dollar. Mm. With inside it was a needle with, but fugu poisoning. But on yeah, it but yeah, probably fugu
1: poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. Um, only one of these was ever made though, because the agency viewed it that like if this ever needs to be used, uh, our, our program is going to get canceled. So mm. we may as well just make what like whatever. So like you know, every time like a pilot would go out, they would just take the necklace toss it on and fly the plane
2: i have no words i had never heard about that i've seen <laughs> a u2 in person i never heard about that
1: <laughs> yeah i, I thought it was i thought that was very interesting um so that brings us to francis gary powers uh, mm-hmm. who was one such pilot of the u2 he grew up in a mining town uh and, and enlisted in with the air force in 1950 he was assigned to be the uh, 468th Strategic Flight Squad at Turner Air Force Base, and he was an F-84 Thunderjet pilot at the time. In 56, he was discharged with the rank of captain, and then he hopped in on and joined the CIA's U-2 program as a GS-12. Okay. So the primary goal of the U-2 flights, obviously, were to do recon over the Soviet Union.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the Soviets knew this was going on, but they lacked any effective countermeasure until 1960. Uh, coincidentally, on May 1st, 1960, Powers uh, left uh, Peshawar, Pakistan. Uh, his flight was to be the first attempt to fly all the way across the Soviet Union, going deeper into the country than ever before, and getting some shots on new targets for intelligence that they hadn't seen yet. Yeah. Powers was hit by an S-75 Divina uh, surface-to-air missile over uh, Svird, Svirdlovsk? I don't know if that's correct.
2: Svird, Svirdlovsk? Yeah. yeah. I, think I've, I think I've heard of that place before. Okay. I can't swear to it. <laughs> too,
1: many, too many consonants from my, from my mouth. Um, mm-hmm. After having 14 missiles launched at him, uh, one of those 14 missiles actually hit a MiG 19 that was sent to intercept him. Huh. And its pilot, uh, Sergei Safronov, um, died later of the injuries after he ejected out of his plane by being hit by friendly fire.
2: Wow. Oh.
1: Uh, an SU-9 was also sent to intercept Power's U-2, and it was directed to basically just ram into him because the SU-9 was an unarmed aircraft. But it wasn't able to do this because of the just drastic speed difference uh, between the two.
2: The It was an airspeed difference. It wasn't a... um a, a, As in, like, the, the uh, pilot just couldn't get a beat on him because it was mm-hmm. going so slow?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah.
1: The U-2... Um, The Powers was uh, fire limbing was hit um, as it was going through the uh, is it the Ural region or Ural region? Ural. Ural Ural. region, uh, causing the aircraft to spin around upside down, kind of go sideways and start like oscillating like a top. Mm -hmm. Um, Powers was unable to activate the camera self-destruct mechanism before he was thrown out of the plane after he released the canopy in his seatbelt. I saw a reference that he he wrote a book and in it he kind of I think he said Squires. that there was a mis- he survived. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> there was a misunderstanding that I think they thought activating the self-destruct on the camera would actually destroy the plane. So he had popped the canopy and kind of got his mm. seatbelt done, you know, because he was ready to bail out as soon as he did it. Um, but you know, that, that was not the case. It was only going to destroy the camera itself. While he was parachuting down, he was able to scatter his escape map. And he uh, tossed the suicide coin, but he actually kept the pin with the poison on it. Um, Mm -hmm. He said, like, he still had hope. Um, Yeah, he wasn't going to have to use it, but just, you know, just in case. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, As soon as he hit the ground, he was immediately captured and uh, taken to prison in Moscow. Once the U.S. learned of powers being shot down, they tried to play it off as a weather plane uh, being shot down, uh, that it had just like straight off course while the pilot was having difficulties with the oxygen equipment. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. nothing to see here, yada, yada, yada. What the CIA didn't realize was the plane crashed basically fully intact, and the (laughs) Soviets had recovered the pilot, the plane, and the top secret altitude camera. So they were like, you're talking some bullshit here.
2: You're talking some bullshit because they already knew that they were talking bullshit, but we have the receipts.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) The KGB interrogated Powers for months before making him to making him confess and issue a public apology for his part in the whole spying and espionage acts. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The U.S. media back home, uh, once the White House turned around and said, "Like, yeah, this is actually what happened," uh, they portrayed Powers as a hero, and Mm -hmm. in fact went so far as to, to showcase him as this iconic. Man who he never smoked or touched alcohol in his life, uh, which is very strange because Powers both drank and smoked socially, like as mm. most, most people did. So it's very weird that they kind of like focused on
2: that. That was actually something very similar to what Hoover wanted to portray as what an FBI man was. In fact, he had the FBI agents, the very first generation of them, weren't allowed to drink coffee to have that same kind of super on the ball not tempted really? by anything yeah Oh wow, or at least that's what i heard i will that's mm-hmm. definitely one of those that i heard anecdotally um i forget where it wasn't on something that i read for uh, that i for sure read Um uh, right, right but uh that was at least a a report by by a by a former agent
1: it's interesting like thinking of coffee of all things as being like seen as like it's, like kind of decadent drug I guess guess it is a stimulant so
2: well to put a cap on the tangent Mm -hmm. but I I think it was more on the uh, order of the agents didn't need that that they that they were Mm, on the ball that they were on the ball it wasn't like an addiction so much as as a portrayal of weakness
0: Mm,
2: in in Hoover's mind but again everybody drank everybody smoked everybody drank coffee
1: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) So during, during this time that the powers was over in Russia being interrogated by the KGB, his wife was back home where the CIA was urging um, her to be given sedatives because she was going to speak before the press um, and give her talking points. Um, or they gave her talking points, rather, to mm-hmm. kind of go down. And they were kind of trying to Portray Powers as this, you know, like a white knight hero guy, and she was the devoted wife that was heartbroken that her husband was captured over in Russia and everything was going on. Hilariously, she had broken her leg around this time. Uh, which the CIA pointed to, and they were like, it was a water skiing accident.
2: Of, of, of course, she's a athletic and vital in all of this. Yeah, so.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Like tragedy upon tragedy, um, everything. Mm. Uh, the actual reason was she got really drunk and was dancing with other men uh, at the bar <laughs> and had broken her leg after a fall. So she, she had a history of adultery like throughout while Powers was like uh, doing his missions and also was an alcoholic apparently. So once Powers confessed, you know, to the espionage and everything. The media did a, a complete 180 and portrayed him as a coward, um, You know, a failure that he hadn't like, destroyed the camera, he hadn't taken the cyanide pill, the poison fugu fish dart, um, and that he was a symptom of the moral decay of America. So Powers, for his part, while he was in Russia, he tried to limit uh, what he told the KGB only to things that he knew they could probably determine from the wreckage of the, sure. the aircraft, which, yeah, makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like part of this, he was hampered because the Western media was reporting other things on this side and Russia was like, yeah, we're like, we're getting all this other information, um, from your media sources. So like, you know, what do you have to say about this sort of thing? It was like, come on guys. Like, damn it. <laughs> he did limit his, uh, divulgence of any CIA context to just one pseudonym by the name of Collins. And he kept telling them that the max altitude of the U2 was actually only 68,000 feet. So like well under its actual limit. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, for his, for the most part, he kept what he could and like you know, they not benefit him in any way to lie about stuff they could just like
2: right, go look right. at the yeah, aircraft about yeah. You know, stiff upper lip and never to divulge li- anything in the real world is not a thing that that happens. But mm-hmm. he took the approach, I think that we that to my understanding is kind of the the best of what we can cur- of what we currently hope that people can do if they're mm-hmm. under this in this situation, which is. Yeah, you're going to talk. Just don't talk about everything. Talk about the things that might validate what they currently have or what they already mm-hmm.
1: know. Yeah, it's like when you're dealing with your parent and they start questioning you. Like, you know, it, they know they know some stuff, so you may as well kind of hopefully decipher pretty quickly what they know, give them that information, and then...
2: So you're telling me the 50s zeitgeist is less sophisticated than a 90s teenager? That's what mm. I'm getting. What yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this entire incident set or caused major setbacks in talks between Eisenhower and Khrushchev at the time, and uh, the Powers trial began on August seventeenth, nineteen sixty, before the Supreme Court of the USSR.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Powers' parents, his sister, um his wife, his wife's mother, and his attorney—that his father had brought along, along with two other attorneys that the CIA uh, gave him—were all present at this trial. Uh, but he was convicted basically two days later of espionage. I mean, he admitted to it, and it
2: wasn't like yeah, yeah, you know, no, 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 yeah. This, this, this was Soviet Russia, and yeah. basically they had him anyway.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: More or less a show trial. Like, I hope you weren't expecting this to be the big surprise reveal in, yeah, yeah, in the episode. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Surprisingly,
2: but I do think that the point you made a little bit earlier that. The American press, in speculating what he was talking about, revealed more than Mm -hmm. what he did. I think that that's a really interesting point.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. And he was uh, obviously convicted, sentenced, 10 years confinement. Three years of that was prison time, and the rest would be at a labor camp. The prison where he...
2: Was this Stalin's Russia, or was this, uh, like, Khrushchev?
1: This is Khrushchev.
2: Okay. Hmm. So it wasn't quite Stalin... Stalin's yeah. gulags. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Um, the prison that he stayed at now houses a small museum, actually, with an exhibit on him with some of his uniform and pieces of the plane and stuff. He became friends with his um his cellmate and like learned like knitting from him. He had a good report with the guards and everything like that. Like it was not I think, too bad of a time given it was prison.
2: Yeah. Given it was a Soviet prison. I and mm-hmm. he had been convicted of espionage. That's yeah. About as good as you could hope for, <laughs> and I would
1: imagine someone that probably goes back to the fact that he, you know, told them everything that like you know they could decipher from the plane itself. So it wasn't like yeah. he was you know hardwalling them where they were just going to throw the book at him and make his life miserable for doing that. Yeah. And w- when it came to the prisoner exchange for powers, because spoiler that happened, the chief of the CIA counterintelligence, James Angleton opposed exchanging powers um because the target was the KGP colonel William Fisher and Engleton believed that powers may have actually just defected to the Soviet side. There's certain CIA documents that have been released in 2010 that showed they did not believe powers account of the incident at the time because it was contradicted by an NSA report, which alleged the U two had descended from 65,000 feet to 34,000 before changing course and vanishing from the radar. Uh, The rest of that report is still classified, so we don't know what more it says, but that part was released.
2: I'm interested in that because James Angleton, James Jesus Angleton, um, Mm -hmm. had a reputation for – and different people have different different takes on this, but the most common thing that I've tended to hear is that he was basically paranoid Mm -hmm. and he caused a lot of damage within the CIA because his – Basically, witch hunts for leaks and, and uh, double agents and stuff uh, just disrupted operations immensely.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: The thing is that if you have that context, the fact that James Angleton doubted his sincerity and loyalty to the U.S. Uh, right. is interest, is more interesting in the context of the fact that he was – known to be, let's say, very aggressive about or, or he would be very distrustful as as um I don't think that the title was specifically head of counterintelligence, but he is but he operated in that role for mm-hmm. many, many years. Um, right. Yeah. And <clears throat> so like it's like, oh of course he rears his head here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. He he also reasoned that powers had given up basically all the information that the Soviets would want from him uh and therefore was basically useless for the united states to get back whereas william fisher had not revealed much of anything to the cia he even refused to uh disclose his real name his real name is william i think it was William fisher um i can't remember it was like Adolf I, yeah, I don't
2: something. Know. I, I don't know his name i'm not familiar with him and again this is one of those situations where i've read about this stuff for a long time and it's just like every time we do an episode i'm like Man, I only got like two sentences out of this whole like book.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Rudolph Abel—that was mm-hmm. the name he was going by.
2: That vaguely rings a bell, but I don't remember mm-hmm. anything else.
1: So, back home, Gary Powers' wife was apparently uh, drinking heavily and mm-hmm. having affairs multiple, and was pulled over for a DUI on June twenty second, nineteen sixty one. In order to avoid any bad publicity, doctors were, by the, uh, were tasked by the CIA to arrange for her to be committed to a psychiatric ward in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, eventually she was released to her mother, but the CIA became very concerned that Gary might learn of everything going on back home and divulge more to the Soviets in desperation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this eventually led JFK to approving the exchange even against um, Angleston's-
2: um, Recommendations. Yeah,
1: recommendations. So Powers and a U.S. student, uh, Frederick Pryor, were exchanged for William Fisher. Uh, Pryor was turned over to U.S. authorities at Checkpoint Charlie
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: due to a bunch of stuff. And Powers was exchanged for Fisher on the uh, Gleinick Bridge. Okay, I, like that. Uh,
2: I should remember that. I should know this one. Checkpoint Charlie, uh, for those who don't know, is the the bridge between East Germany and West Germany. Checkpoint mm-hmm. Charlie is is the checkpoint on that on the uh, bridge between the two sides.
1: Yeah. Upon arriving home, Powers was immediately criticized for not activating the self destruct of the camera and for not using his poison coin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the media just kind of lambasted him. He was, though, debriefed by the CIA and the Air Force for you know a long period of time. But it was found that he had lived up to the terms of his employment and instructions in connection with his mission. Uh, you know, they found nothing wrong with anything he had done. And on March 6th, 1962, he appeared before a Senate committee know, um, mm-hmm. multiple senators who you know basically were just like, yeah, like you're a hero. You did what you had to. We got you back. Like we commend you
2: mm-hmm.
1: on August 14th, 1962. Power sued for divorce, claiming abuse from his wife, uh, both physically and mentally. And he married Claudia Downey, who worked on after his death to help preserve his legacy um, You know, of who he was. Powers died on August 1st, 1977. He was mm-hmm. piloting a helicopter for LATV KNBC over the San Fernando Valley while they were recording uh, brush fires. They had gone out were recording these and were coming back home um, when the helicopter crashed. Apparently, the helicopter ran out of fuel, which people kind of cited. were like, you know, really? But what had happened, according to Power's son, was a mechanic had repaired a faulty fuel gauge and had not told Powers about it. So he misread the fuel gauge, thinking it was still Uh, faulty and thinking mm -hmm. he still had fuel in it. And it's also noted that at the last moment as he was descending down to a landing, he realized there were children playing in the field that he had chosen to land in. And he didn't Mm -hmm. want to land on these children, so he diverted the helicopter and in doing that diversion, he compromised his landing. that um, caused the helicopter to sure. crash. So he is now buried in Arlington National Cemetery as an Air Force veteran. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I thought that this was also very interesting because there's certain points here too, like people you know, still to this day criticize him for not taking the cyanide pill, not taking you know doing mm-hmm. this or that. And it's very interesting to just kind of look into the full scope of things, and being like, oh, no pilots even like brought it with them on the mission. Like that was yeah. you know not a thing. No one was going to ever, you know, use the cyanide pill.
2: Well, for one of my inevitable tangents, there uh, I brought up the book Command and Control before that mm-hmm. talked about the Damascus incident, which was which was basically a nuclear missile silo uh, a titan missile solo i believe that um uh, blew up and good mm-hmm. and in there they talk a lot about when this is strategic air command so they're so like everything's a checklist everything's by the book and then you hear all of this stuff of things that folks did to like get the job done or deal with a procedure that was onerous or a pain in the ass stuff like that and it's just and and you get that and other stories and other places, and like there is a degree to which you can write it up, but things are not actually going to happen that way. right. The misunderstanding between knowing if the self-destruct was gonna just burn up the plates, or like burn up all of the film, mm-hmm. burn up the the camera, or blow up the whole plane. That's the kind of thing where even if you tell somebody. Given the situation they're in, there might be like a mythology between the pilots where they, where even if you tell them it just blows up the camera, they still don't trust it.
1: Oh, right? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Like you, <laughs> you were also referencing the fact that like this is like you know nineteen fifties, sixties. Like mm-hmm. even if it was designed just to burn up the camera, you're flying. This glider with like you know an engine on it at seventy thousand feet. Right. Who's to say that's only yeah, the thing that? Yeah, this is up? not a
2: commercial airliner that's been tested to the nth degree and has been in service for uh, for you know decades. This is yeah. no. We think this is what it does. Nobody's mm-hmm. actually tried it like in the heat of, of 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 having to do it in an emergency. Yeah. But yeah. we're pretty sure it works. Like we we've we've tested it some.
1: Yeah, we tested a few times on the ground. It works. Trust uh, said it'll work as you're, you've been hit by a missile and your plane is careening towards the uh, the yeah. ground.
2: And not to discount the engineering of the era, the mm-hmm. U-2 and the SR-71 are engineering marvels. There's a reason why they still fly the U-2 today. There's a right. reason why they haven't built a production plane that can do the things that an SR-71 can do in terms of speed and altitude. Right they were engineering marvels of their time they were at the very bleeding ed- edge of the technology and they were done in an era before there were computers it's like it, insane to me and this is the whole like history of technology you have to change your frame of mind and your perspective to what was possible at the time because mm-hmm. comparing it to modern manufacturing tolerances modern ability to model things and calculate things on a computer and actually modern materials technology it's so different. And I mean, you and I being in middle age have at least have some perspective on, on this, but mm-hmm. get too much younger than us, like the people who like don't remember a time before the internet and the idea of a production car being like the cars in the 50s as mm-hmm. they came off the line, ever being sold to you know, people with no seatbelts and stuff is yeah. shocking. Yeah,
1: oh. like here, here sitting this is like giant block of steel and just hope to God you don't hit anything.
2: Yeah, that that rattles and has no seatbelts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's insane. But it's it's always interesting too. Like flight tangent. Like this this talk reminds me of when you watch like the Ancient alien show and things like that, mm. where we look back in history and go. Oh well there's no way they couldn't have could have done this without like cranes and like lasers and all this other stuff. Had to be aliens. And it was like no, humans are really amazing at doing things uh, when they put yeah. their minds to it.
2: Especially when you're seeing the one time that they got it right as opposed to all the time that they failed at it.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then also just learning like extra aspects of history of like, you know, like ancient pyramids, um, you know, not only were you building this thing for someone that you worshiped as a god, but you also like it wasn't like portrayed like it is now, where it was like, oh, they were just like worked to the bone. Like they had contracts, they got paid, they went home on the weekend. They like, you know,
2: yeah. Specifically in the case of pyramids, that was like mm-hmm. it was like the way that they got taxed was by labor during mm-hmm. the no, during like the non-agriculture months.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was like, okay, what are you going to do during then? Like you're going to build something for the guy you worship as a god, and also be like get fed and housed like that's yeah. kind of a no-brainer so yeah anyways that is the story of gary powers
2: i hadn't heard a lot of that i i the, the james jesus angleton cameo was 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 especially fun
1: so i I still think my favorite is the the silver dollar with the uh the blowfish dart
2: that's pretty hilarious i <laughs> i don't know that we could top that i'm just i'm still shocked that i had never heard of that before
0: Find out about new episodes at r slash Hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.